0: Well, today is Father's Day, as you are no doubt aware, and uh, I thought we'd celebrate today by looking at a dad in the Bible who is, I think, on the one hand, the most easily overlooked father in the Bible, and yet on the other hand, I think, is maybe one of the most easily impressive. He's an incredible, incredible guy. His name is Joseph, as you can see from the screens, and if you know the Christmas story, you already know a little bit about his story. You know, for example, that this is the man who becomes the husband of Mary, the mother of Christ, and, well, then also, this is the guy that becomes the earthly father of Christ. And I want you to think about that for a second. This is the guy that God chooses, and not just chooses, but then forms and shapes and molds and grooms to become the father of the son, with a capital S, of the heavenly father. Jesus Christ, through the womb of Mary, takes upon himself humanity and enters into our humanity and enters into our humanity under the care of this man under the tutelage of this man, under the discipleship of this man, under the leadership of this man, under the example, under the fatherhood of this man. That's not a little thing. And Joseph is an impressive man. And I want you to see today what makes him so impressive. What makes him so impressive, if I can just put it in our language here as a church, is that Joseph is a guy who knows the Word of God. And what else does he do? He lives it. Know the word? Oh, man, you need coffee. Yeah, know the word, live the word. That's this guy, and I want you to see that in his life, and then I want you to look for it in yours. And I want you to know this isn't just a Father's Day message. This is for everybody. We pick up our study of Joseph's life in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, where Matthew comes to us, and this is what he says. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, and it's going to be different. He says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed, and that is a key concept today, he doesn't come to us and say, listen, when his mother Mary and Joseph, our know-the-word-live-the-word-dad that we're going to look at and learn from today, got engaged, you know, like you guys do in the 21st century, that's not what he says. It's a very different idea. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to our guy Joseph, and yet before they came together, meaning before they reached their wedding day and their marriage was physically consummated, what happened? She was found. Isn't that interesting? She was found, I love that word, to be with child. It's like there was something that she could no longer hide anymore. And when you're pregnant, that's the way it works, isn't it? I mean, at some point... That's it. And she reached that point. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before the wedding, before the physical consummation of the marriage, she was found to be with child. But then here is the catch. The child that she was found to be pregnant with was from the Holy Spirit. And here's the interesting thing. You know, as we come to this story, the interesting thing from my perspective is we already knew that. Why? Because we know the Christmas story, but Joseph doesn't know the Christmas story. Joseph is living the Christmas story. This is a real-time event for him. It's unfolding. And for him, this is an outrage. For him, this is a scandal of epic proportion. For him, his whole world starts shattering and the sky begins to fall on this guy. This is not the way he thought it would go. It's not the way anyone thought it would go. See, back in Joseph's day, things like dating and marriage and all this was handled very differently. Godly families of godly 12 to 13-year-old girls would go and and purposefully connect with godly families of godly 16 to 20-ish-year-old boys, and they would work deals. They would enter into binding legal written covenants by which they married off their daughters to these godly young men, and that's... That's clearly what happened here. And it was not like an engagement. It's far more significant than that. They were actually, these kids, before the wedding day, were spoken of as husband and wife. And you'll see evidence of that as we travel through this passage. Mary is now his wife. Joseph is now her husband. The only way that you could end or sever this kind of agreement was to die or divorce. It's a big deal. And it lasted a year. And the purpose of the year for the bride-to-be was to prove her purity. Guess how she would do that? Because it's really relevant to the story. She would prove her purity by not becoming pregnant, by not being found with child. Because, I mean, at some point it's just, you know, it's out there literally. Now, from the perspective of the groom, what would he do? He would prove his ability and capacity to take care of her, to secure a home for her. He would do that by saving. He would do that by working. He would do that by building. He would literally create the home that he would then, in a nighttime torch-lit parade with all of their family and their entire village, go to her house and get her from her parents, receive her from their hand. And then he would take her back to the home that he made for her, knowing that she would redecorate the whole thing three seconds after she got there. But that's all right. So imagine the anticipation of that. Imagine the celebration of that. And not just for Joseph and not just for Mary, but for these two godly families who feel like they got the deal of a lifetime, and they did. These two young people were extraordinary, amazing. You know, the story of the angel comes to Mary and tells her that she will be impregnated by God in a non-sexual way, by means of the Holy Spirit who will overshadow her. Even as the Spirit hovers over the waters of creation at the very beginning of the Bible, He will create in her. And what does she do? She sings this magnificent song that is full of Scripture. This is a godly woman. Joseph has the catch of the village coming to him, at least in terms of virtue. And you know what? So does she. So does she. But it comes undone, doesn't it? The expectations are broken. And the world begins to fall upon Joseph as she is found to be with child, and the scandal begins to reverberate throughout the entire village, and maybe even to some of the other villages. You know, they were not all that far apart, and a lot of relatives. And if Joseph knows anything at this point in the story, it is that that kid's not his. Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, and it's going to be different, he says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, the know the word, live the word, dad, that we're looking at and learning from today, before he took her to the home that he created for her through the torch-lit parade, and before they came together physically, she was found. She was discovered to be with child, and here's her alibi. You Ready? This child is from the Holy Spirit. Now, again, we know the Christmas story. So we're all in on the alibi. You're like, yep, that's exactly the way it went down. We're not even affected by that. But Joseph doesn't know the Christmas story. Joseph thinks she's gone crazy. Wouldn't you? Now, not only is this girl that I thought was morally, you know, like above reproach, actually not, but mentally above reproach. Actually not. She's not only morally unstable, but she's emotionally and mentally and psychologically unstable as well. All of a sudden, there are a lot of problems with this girl, because to Joseph's mind and to the mind of every other person who's ever lived in all of human history, and by the way, who all would have been right, with this one exception, there are, there are two ways for her to have gotten pregnant. One, adultery, because that's what they called it. Remember, member, their husband and wife, or rape. Right. That's the way it works. So Joseph starts to survey his options. And option number one for Joseph, according to the law of God, was if she was a consensual partner in this act of adultery, or at least apparent act of adultery, that resulted in this pregnancy, well then, Joseph could legally have her stoned to death and the man with whom she was with. So that's an option. The other option covers the rape issue. If, in fact, that's what had happened, well, then she's free and clear. She is guiltless, guys. She is innocent. It's not her fault. But the guy that did this, Joseph can have him stoned to death, at least if she can identify him. And if you begin to play this out in your head for a minute, if you have an unwanted pregnancy in that day and you want to save your life, preserve your innocence, and even save the life of your lover, what do you do? I mean, if you're going to lie to cover it up, You say, I was raped and I have no idea who it was. Here's what you don't say. You don't say, I know this is going to be hard to believe, but just have a seat and get the smelling salts out. Here we go. God, by the Holy Spirit, has impregnated me in a non-sexual way such that the child who is now being knit together in my womb is both God and man... And I will give birth to him, and his birth will be the first and only virgin birth in all of human history. That's the one you don't come up with. I mean, unless you're going to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, you don't go there. But Mary's not going to lie. Mary gives glory to God even when it draws into question her sanity as well as her virtue. So that's her story. Nobody's buying it, not even Joseph, and don't be too quick to judge him because I wouldn't have bought it either, and neither would you. So what's he going to do? Joseph chooses door number three. There is a third option available to him, and it's divorce, and it could be done in one of two ways. It could be done publicly. He could drag her out, kind of into the streets, if you will, and publicly do this thing, and publicly disavow her, disavow whatever happened that brought this child into being, disavow the whole thing, or he could do it privately. He could go to her house with two witnesses that he's sworn to secrecy in some sense, I mean, the community's going to know he divorces her. It'll get out. But as gently as possible, give her a bill of divorce and move on. That is the most merciful option that was available to him. And that, to his credit, is what he chose to do. Matthew says, and her husband, hear that language? The wedding hasn't happened yet. He's her husband. And her husband, being a just man, he's someone who stands for justice, but not just justice, also kindness, also mercy, also humility, being a just man who is also merciful and being unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly or privately as opposed to publicly. And he resolved to do this, even though he and everybody else honestly believed that this woman had seriously wronged him, and publicly shamed and humiliated him. This would be difficult enough today, guys. But in the Middle East, it's a shame-based culture. You shame someone? Oh, man. That is seriously offensive. Joseph is merciful. And the question is, why is he so merciful? Well, that's because he knows the Word and he lives the Word, and here's what he knows the Word says. And it says it to him, and it says it to me, and it says it to all of our dads, and it says it to everybody else who claims Christ as well. It says that, yes, we are to do justice. We'll see that. Justice is something we do. But we're to do it in a way that manifests and demonstrates and reveals a passionate love for kindness, for mercy, and a humble walk with the Lord. Joseph knew, for example, what the prophet Micah says in Micah chapter six, beginning verse eight, or really in just verse eight, and he says this. And I want you to listen to it and just imagine it from his perspective, but then enter into it from your perspective as well. He says, "He, meaning God, has told you, oh man, what is good." Now, what is Joseph trying to figure out? I mean, his world is collapsing. He's got to make a decision. What is he trying to figure out? What is good? Okay. Well, God has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? Well, again, that's, that's his question, isn't it? And I appreciate, by the way, the fact that this guy who's 16, 17, 18, 19, or 20 years old had enough restraint and character to even pause to ask the question. Don't you? He. Well, here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't hear about it. Go over and see. Yeah, you know, I just thought maybe you know it was the donuts, but no. It's like she's. You know, it's undeniable. She's been found to be with child. He doesn't explode. He doesn't drag her out into the street and demand that she be stoned. He doesn't react in a way in which his passions overwhelm him. And in the moment he divorces her publicly, at the very least, the fruit of the spirit. What's the last one, do you know? It's self control. At a young age, it's an impressive guy. He backs out, he takes some deep breaths. He knows if he goes to see her now, it might not go well, so he kind of steps aside. And he recognizes that even the injuries to him, the injuries to me, the injuries to you belong to the Lord. They're his to do with what he will. They're his to use through us to bring him glory. So Joseph prays and tosses and turns, I imagine, And I think this verse is running around in his heart and mind and bouncing around within him. He, God, has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice. Again, justice is not something that we say only. It is something that we do. It's active. We, believers in Jesus Christ, worshipers of this God, are to be a people that actively pursue justice and pursue it not just for ourselves, but for others as you run through the Bible. God is going, hey, don't run past the disadvantaged. Hey, don't run past the widow and the orphan. Don't run past the single moms. Don't run past the unborn. Don't run past those who have no power, have no ability to take a stand have no voice with which to cry out for themselves. We're to be a people who do justice. And that is challenging enough. But the challenge is far, far greater, and it's the second half that I think is the greatest part of the challenge. What has God said to you? What has He told you, O man, what is good? He's told you that. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and, oh, here's the hard part, to love kindness in the doing of it. And to walk, which is a metaphor for life, and to live, he's saying, humbly with your God. We are to be a people who do justice, but again, who do it in such a way as to manifest and demonstrate and to reveal to our kids, to our wives, to our husbands, to our parents, to our friends, to our co-workers, to a watching world, the people with whom we work and live and play. That, yeah, we do justice, but we love kindness. And we walk humbly with the Lord. And that walk shows up in the way that we do that. And I think that's, that's a very convicting thought. Maybe it's just me. But in other words, I, I think that we are very quick to deal out justice oftentimes. And by we, I mean me. By we, I mean the Christian community at large. We're real quick on the justice piece at times. And I think we're real slow on the kindness at times. I don't think the two are coupled together much. It's like two different trains, two different carts. I think we're real quick to condemn oftentimes, way too quick. And rarely do we pardon because we're humble and we ourselves have been pardoned. I think sometimes we major on seeing and pointing out and and holding up and displaying, ruminating, dwelling upon the faults and the wrongs of other people in our family, in our society, and far too slow to see and to notice and to point out and to put on display and to dwell upon and to ruminate on the things they do right, the things they do well. In fact, sometimes I think we're so apt to see the bad that I wonder if it's all we're looking for. Because I'll tell you, you find what you're looking for. What are you looking for in your wife? What are you looking for in your husband? What are you looking for in your children? What are you looking for in your parents? What are you looking for in the people you work, live, play, go to school with? If you dig for dirt, you find dirt on lots of it. If you dig for gold, you'll find some of that as well. So Mary has been found to be with child. It's undeniable. And it's a scandal that has wrecked this man's heart, that has ruined this guy's dreams. His whole world as he had conceived it is now shattered and falling down. It's like rain coming down upon his head. And he is ruined. And yet when given the opportunity to return the favor... Okay, he stands for justice, but he takes the most merciful road available to him. Matthew says, and Joseph, her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, though he has been shamed, resolved instead to divorce her quietly. So that's the plan he settles on, but he hasn't done it yet. And then we read this, but as he considered these things, behold, it's a word of sight. It's like, look! Can you believe it? An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and the angel is going to tell him what the real deal is. Now, why does it happen that way? Because that's what it's going to take. It's what it took for Mary. It's what it took for Joseph. It took an act of God to convince them that this is reality. And you know what the reality is, too? That's what it took for me. It's what it takes for you. It takes an act of God by His Spirit who comes and makes us alive, who forms, spiritually speaking, ears that suddenly hear this stuff and go, yeah, I'm in. That actually makes sense to me. Because this is unnatural, isn't it? It's supernatural. And if you think about it, it explains the whole of the life of Jesus. Look, if God has determined to enter into humanity as a man and to take to himself humanity and to be knit together and formed in the womb of a woman and birthed through her virginally into this planet, if that has in fact occurred, I am not at all bothered by the fact that that God man walks on water. I'm not disturbed in the least. I don't even find it surprising makes the blind see, makes the deaf hear, makes the mute speak, raises the dead right on. I'd be shocked if it didn't happen. The virgin birth makes sense of the whole of the life of Christ. It's how God chose to come and really and truly to be with us. It's an astounding thought. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But then, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be too angry to take Mary as your wife. No. All right, don't be too hurt, because he is hurt, don't you think? Don't be too bitter. Don't be too resentful. Don't be too embarrassed. Listen to what he says. The next word's important. He says, do not fear. There's something to be afraid of in this. Do not fear. By the way, that's not a suggestion. He's commanding him. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, and here's why. For that which is conceived in her is, in fact, from the Holy Spirit, to which the angel then adds a second command. He says, she will bear a son, and here's what you're going to do with that son, Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus. You are going to name him... Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So now Joseph knows the word of God to him. And the only open question is, well, is he going to do it or not? And if he's going to do it, here's what he's going to have to do. He's going to have to embrace this in faith and resist the impulse to run from this in fear because there's something fearful about this. What's that? Well, Joseph is a first century Jewish carpenter, peasant slave of the Roman Empire, from Galilee. Translation, he's a nobody. He's looked down upon by the Romans. He's looked down upon by his own people. He has no money at all, and he's never going to. He's going to be living in poverty all his life. He has no fame or status, and he he never will have any of those things. Joseph has only one thing, but it's a very valuable thing. It's something that he has spent his whole life cultivating. And in that day, at least... It was valued above treasure. It was valued above fame. It was valued above status. What Joseph has is a good name, but not if he marries Mary. And certainly not if he names this child, because here's what's going to happen. If he marries this woman and takes her to be his, what is everyone going to assume? That it's his kid. That's going to be even more scandalous. And then, if he names the child, because naming a child in that culture was to legally accept the child as your own, well, what are they going to assume? That it's his kid. In all of the shame and ignominy that she is now suffering, he will be taking upon himself, losing the one thing he's cultivated his whole life and, frankly, the only thing he had apart from life, and that was his good name. It is going to be gone. It will be dead to him. But he will be alive to Jesus. And the idea here is that he recognizes that Christ is a greater treasure. It's amazing. Joseph knows the Word, and, you know, he lives it, and you know that because you know the Christmas story. He takes Mary as his wife. He takes Jesus and names him and says, I accept him as my own. And what I want you to see in this is that he lives the Word even when it's hard. That would have been a very difficult thing to do. You know, I think, you know, I mean, as you toss this around, it's, it's easy to know the Word and to live the Word Well, when living the Word really doesn't cost you anything, isn't it? It's like, ah, can you do this? Yeah, you know what, I can fit that in. It's not a big deal. But it's a whole other story altogether when knowing the Word and living the Word is a costly thing. But that's the kind of obedience, guys, if I can just speak to you, that your wives need to see. And that's the kind of obedience, frankly, that all of our kids need to see. Because those are the moments when we really and truly stake our claim. Those are the moments when we open our heart and reveal what is in fact in it. Those are the moments when it really is going to cost us, okay? Not when it's easy, not when it's simple, not when it's convenient. Oh, I'm driving that way. I can do that anyway. No big deal. No, no, no. When it's going to sting, when it's going to cost, those are the moments in which we say, in words and in actions that matter the most how valuable and how great a treasure our God really and truly is for us. Those are the formative moments. Those are the ones our kids remember. They really are. And I don't think that we can reasonably expect them to value our God more than we ourselves demonstrate with our own lives that we do. There's a famous painting, uh, it's a 17th century painting by George de la Tour, and I've been using it as the background for our slide, but you can see it now without any words over the top of it. And It hangs in the Louvre, it's called Joseph the Carpenter, and it's really kind of a cool picture. If you look at the painting, you can see Jesus. He's the little boy in the, in the painting. He's probably, I don't know, nine or ten. I think he kind of looks about the same age as my son at this point. And you can see Joseph there, and Joseph is working as a carpenter. You know, he has the auger in his hand, and he's got the lumber laid out on the ground. And And obviously, they're working out into the night, I guess, and Jesus is sitting there holding the light by which Joseph is, is working. But as you look at the painting, you can see that this man has studied the Scriptures and meditated upon the Bible, because as you study it carefully you begin to see images within it that give you a message you see that the auger in the hand of joseph in joseph's hand is turned towards us and it forms the shape of a cross can you see that and then it's kind of hard to see and hear maybe because the image is dark, but as you look at the lumber that's laid out on the ground, what you begin to realize is that the lumber that's laid on the ground also is in the shape of a cross, and Jesus sitting there with the candle is really sitting at the head of the cross, at the top of where the cross would be. And I think that what de La Tour is doing through his artwork is he's coming and he's delivering a message that he's discerned from the Bible, and what is the message that he's discerned from the Bible? I think the message is, That Jesus Christ learned, at least in part, the kind of costly obedience that would allow Him ultimately to go to the cross from Joseph. I want to ask you, what lessons are your kids learning from you? Dads, moms? What is it? What lessons are they learning from the way that you speak, from the way that you pray, from the value that you place on the study of God's word? What lessons? What lessons from the way that you worship and the communities that you plug into and don't, from the way that you serve and use the way that God has made you to serve others and to serve Him by doing it? What lessons are they learning about honesty and integrity, sexually, ethically, financially? What are they learning by the way that you use money, by the generosity that you demonstrate toward God and obedience to God, though it's costly, and toward others as He leads you to do so? What are they learning about the value of your God to you by watching you and the way that you obey the Lord? Not when it's convenient, but man, when it is like way inconvenient. They're valuable lessons. Jesus learned from Joseph in such a way as to form him and to shape and prepare him for the cross. So Matthew says, But as Joseph considered, divorcing Mary quietly is the idea. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit after all. And she will bear a son, and here's what you're going to do. You shall call His name Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. And then Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet in the word of God that Joseph knew and lived so very well. And here's that word, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then Matthew tells us that when Joseph woke from sleep, look what he does. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. It's interesting, isn't it? His obedience is immediate. It's awesome. He's like Abraham. The Lord comes to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, the one whom you love. I want you to take him to this region of Moriah. I want you to sacrifice him. You know, on the mountain that I'm going to show you when you get there. What does it say? Abraham arose early, chopped the wood himself, took the fire and the knife and his son and a donkey and two servants and set out it's like joseph it's immediate he's so impressive he's more impressive than moses like moses tries to argue his way out of the deal you know he meets with god at the burning bush you would think that would be pretty formative here's what i want you to go do you know what lord i'm not a good public speaker i really got he... a lot of people argued with the lord before relenting A lot of people that we revere far more than this man, it seems, certainly give a lot more attention to. His obedience is immediate. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. There's no doubt who the father is. And he called his name Jesus. And then he taught him to know God's Word, and to live God's Word way, way, way even better than he ever did. And he prepared him through those lessons to obey God all the way to the cross, for that's where he went for every one of us. So Joseph is an impressive dad. Why? He knows the Word, and by faith, and by grace, and by the power of God's Spirit, within the context of God's gospel I'm sure he blew it positive on that he lived it and he lived it powerfully so here's my challenge to you it's to package up all the failures that you've been thinking about throughout this whole message anybody other than me have that thought i think sometimes fathers day can be a reminder of what we have not done well, as opposed to maybe the things that we have done well. And you too need to choose what you're going to focus on, don't you? What you're going to look for. But you need to recognize that you are a dad who belongs to Jesus Christ, which means that you are forgiven and washed and empowered by His Spirit. And you need to bring your failures to Him, honestly acknowledge them, lay them down at His feet and be free of them. But then, by the power of that same Spirit, you need to get up and devote yourself to knowing the Word of God and to living the Word of God by that same Spirit. Guys, we devote ourselves to so many lesser things. What will you devote yourself to? That's your legacy. That's the treasure you leave behind. That's what, in the end will remain and make a difference for all eternity.